right, let's open in prayer, and then we'll pick up in our study. Father, we're so grateful that You love us. What an amazing truth that You have chosen to love us. You've set Your love upon us in a saving way. It was Your love that enabled us to love You. We love You because You first loved us. In love, You predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Yourself. You have drawn us to Yourself. You have given us new hearts. You've given us new life. You've forgiven us of all of our trespasses, cleansed us of all our sin, and our Savior is the basis on which our sins have been forgiven. He died for us. He bled for us. He paid the penalty for us and satisfied Your justice that was against us. And for that, Lord, we're so grateful. We thank You that the Gospel has come effectually into our hearts. We're thankful for the privilege of gathering together as a church. And now as we study this important topic, as few of us as there may be here this morning, it's still yet an important topic, the topic of discipleship. And I pray that You would give us wisdom on how to be better disciple-makers and to be better followers of Jesus for the glory of our Savior. To which end we pray. Amen. Alright, we come in our continuous study of the spiritual disciplines this morning to the topic of discipleship. Uh, We've studied uh, four disciplines so far. I think four, right? Yeah, four. So we've worked our way through four disciplines so far. Who can remember some of the disciplines we've talked about? Some of you weren't here the whole time, so it's not fair. What are some of the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines that we've discussed so far? We talked about worship. You guys were here for that one, so that's fair, right? We talked about worship. We talked about how we need to worship God in spirit and truth. We talked about uh, private worship. We talked about corporate worship, family worship, and worship in all of life. What are some of the other disciplines we talked about? We talked about evangelism. We spent the last two months talking about evangelism. Can you tell one of my favorite topics? It's evangelism, right? So we spent eight weeks talking about the topic of evangelism. And then before that, before you all got here, we talked about prayer and Bible intake, okay? We talked about the five ways to grasp the Word. You read it, you hear it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate upon it. Uh, For prayer, we talked about praying the Scriptures. One of the best ways to pray is to open the Bible, specifically the Psalms, and just read a line and then pray whatever comes to your heart. And, uh, you know, what we end up doing is praying the same old things about the same old things, but when you open the Scripture and you pray the Bible, it enables you to pray new things because you have the Word of God before you. So those that will help you pray inspired prayers, prayers that are in line with the will of God. And then we talked about worship and evangelism. So now this morning we come to the topic of discipleship. And uh, this is an important topic. I don't think this is a, uh, a topic that we think a lot about in terms of spiritual discipline. But I'm going to make the case that spiritual maturation involves the process of discipleship. But that brings us, uh, the, really are four things I want to do. Four things. Number one, I want to consider and answer several questions about discipleship. Number two, I want to make some additional and miscellaneous comments regarding discipleship. Number three, I want to present to you a practical discipleship plan for our church. And I was hoping that we would have more of the members of our church for this this morning, but uh, you guys are here for now. So, And then number four, I want to suggest some helpful resources for discipleship. So let's start with considering and answering several questions about discipleship. And it starts with, uh, I think, the most basic and obvious question, and that is, what is discipleship? So let me ask you that. What is discipleship? Does anybody know? I don't have my note takers today. So. 
When you hear the word discipleship, what comes to your mind? Okay, so it involves guiding others to follow Christ more deeply. Okay. What else? How else might you define discipleship? There's two words, two Greek words to uh, consider. The first one is mathetes, and it's where we get the word mathematics from. Math comes from the word disciple. And the word disciple means a learner, a student, a follower, a pupil. So it's someone who follows after Jesus, learns from Jesus, right? What did Jesus tell his disciples? Come and what? Come follow me, right? Discipleship is following after Jesus. The other word is the verb, it's the word mathetuo, and it means to make disciples, to teach, to guide, to instruct, to lead, to train, and so on. And so it includes, the word discipleship is, is kind of all-encompassing. It includes both our discipleship, our following after Jesus and learning from Him, but it also includes our discipling others and helping others follow after Jesus and teaching them the Word of God. <clears throat> Uh, Greg Ogden defines it this way. Greg Ogden says, Discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow toward maturity in Christ. This includes equipping the disciple to teach others as well. Very important definition. Let's kind of dive into some of these words. He says that it's an intentional relationship. So discipling involves building, discipling relationships with other people for the purpose of walking alongside of them, training them, teaching them, and equipping them toward maturity in Christ. Okay, so it involves relationship. And then Mark Dever, to paraphrase Mark Dever, he says discipling is doing spiritual good to others and helping others follow Christ. Okay, so that's discipleship. That's the aspect of it that I want to focus on. Uh, discipling, helping others learn about and follow after Jesus. So where do you think this starts? Where does the discipleship process begin with a non-believer? Evangelism, right? We call them to come after Christ. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> Acts chapter 14. This is a, a chapter in which we find the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. And he's in the region of Galatia, uh, doing ministry in cities, uh, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, these various cities. He's preaching the gospel, planting churches, and so on. And we find uh, in verse 21, all the way to verse 23, we find a biblical example of this Greek word, make disciples. Starting at verse 21, Luke writes this, After they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples... So how did they make disciples? They preached the Gospel, right? So it begins with evangelism. The first step for discipleship for the non-believer is declaring the Gospel to them and calling them to come after Christ. Calling them to repent. Calling them to believe. Let me ask you this. When does someone become a disciple? Is a disciple uh, like a second level of spirituality? It's kind of a whole other plane. It's a level of spiritual maturity. 
So when they're converted, right? To be a disciple is to be a Christian and vice versa. There is this idea today that you know you get saved, you just ask Jesus in your heart or whatever, you become a Christian, and then later on it'd be a good idea to become a disciple, but you don't really have to. But in reality, the Bible uses those terms Christian and disciple synonymously, interchangeably. In fact, the word Christian is only found in the New Testament three times. Three times. The first time it appears in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 11. In verse 26, Luke writes, the, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So who's called, disciples, or who's called Christians? Disciples, right? Same thing. They're, the, they're interchangeable terms. They refer to the same kind of people. A disciple is someone who follows after Christ. A Christian is likewise someone who follows after Christ. Different terms for the same idea. So, verse 21 again, back in Luke 14. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So you make disciples by what? Preaching the gospel. And then what do you do? Follow up with them, right? Strengthen them. How do you do that? Teach them the Word of God, right? So you proclaim the Gospel, call people to repent and believe, and when they're converted, you follow up with them and you teach them the Word. So verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, watch this. Notice Paul doesn't say, hey, come to Jesus, He'll give you a better life. Look what he says. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So as we're doing discipling, discipleship, We've got to be honest with those with whom we disciple, right? We're telling them to come lose their life, to come follow after Jesus, and through many tribulations, many sufferings, we have to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, He's calling them to continue in the faith. He's calling them to go on in Christ. Don't just make an initial profession and then go back to the world, but continue following after Him regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences, because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Then verse 23. Here we're going to find an answer to this question. Here's the question. Where does discipleship best take place? In what context? Where do you think discipleship best takes place? Where are we at this morning? The local church, right? Watch this, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and his missionary team comes, come into these cities, preaches the gospel, people are converted, they follow up with him, they plant churches and appoint pastors in every church. And notice, by the way, that the word elders is plural, the word church is singular. He doesn't say they appointed an elder in every church, but they appointed elders in every church, because each church is to be governed by a plurality of pastors, elders, men who shepherd the flock. And that's what happens here. So discipleship then takes place best in the context of a local church where God's people are being edified and built up in the faith and building relationships with one another. I go to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. So discipleship begins with preaching the gospel, calling non-believers to the faith, following up with them and teaching them the Word of God, instructing them, and this takes place best in the context of a local church. Now look at Matthew 28. This is uh, 
the passage our minds usually go to, I think, when we talk about discipleship. Verse, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why do you think Jesus prefaces the Great Commission by affirming His authority? What's so significant about that? Before He gives the Great Commission, He begins by affirming His authority. I need some more note-takers on it. Well, think about it. He's about to give us a command, isn't He? I got it. And where is this command coming from? The one who has all authority. Right? This is not just a suggestion. This is an authoritative command from the King of Heaven who possesses all authority in the cosmos. All authority belongs to Him. Verse 19. Let's see if we can kind of figure out the steps of discipleship Jesus lays out for us. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus tells them, go therefore and make disciples. So discipling begins with going, right? You can't make disciples if you just sit at home all the time. right? You can't make disciples if we just stay in our holy club and read our books all day. For us to make disciples, we have to go. And the Greek uh, construction of the passage could literally be rendered this way, having gone therefore. It's just an assumption that if you're going to make disciples, the church has to go. Uh, we have the church gathered, but we also have to be the church scattered, right? We have to go into the world if we're going to make disciples. So he says, having gone therefore, literally disciple the nation. This is the main verb in the text. This is the command, make disciples. The rest of the passage tells us how we do that. It starts with having gone, and we go into the world, and what do we do when we go into the world? Preach the gospel, right? We evangelize. We call non-believers to the faith. Then, baptizing them. And where does that take place again? In the context of the local church. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So you preach the gospel to non-believers. You bring them into the context of the church through baptism. And then you do what? You teach them. Instruct them in the Word of God. And then notice the power for all of this. Where do we get the strength to carry out this mission? Who strengthens us to carry out the Great Commission? God. This is an easy one, right? Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The omnipresent Christ dwelling in our hearts, strengthening us is what enables us to fulfill this Great Commission. Now turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. These three passages, if you memorize these, and if you grasp the... uh, the intent of these passages, you'll have a very solid understanding of discipleship. So, discipleship begins with preaching the gospel to the non-believer, bringing them into the church through baptism, and instructing them in the Word of God. Now, 2 Timothy 2.2 kind of gives us the process of transmission, you could say. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, "...the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses..." 
Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So did you notice the process there? It's a process of transmission. There are various generations of people. Let's see if we can count how many there are. The things which you have heard from me. So all right, so you got Paul teaching things to Timothy, right? So one to two. Then you got Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men. There's generation three. Who will be able to teach others also? There's generation four, right? Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. And we've been assumed that that just keeps going. Others to others to others, etc., right? It's a, a process of multiplication of reproducing ourselves within other Christians. Now, who do you think is called to do this? Is this just something uh, church leaders are to do? Everyone. Everyone. Every Christian. So should every Christian be involved to some degree in teaching other Christians? Yes, right? We're not saying that every Christian is called to formally teach, right? Not everyone's called to preach publicly in the local church meeting to the people of God. That's a serious issue that uh, James says not many of you should become teachers, right? Uh, This is a very uh, sober issue to teach the Word of God to the people of God publicly on the Lord's Day. Not everyone is called to stand on the street corner and publicly and open and preach, right? Not everyone's called to do that. But every Christian should grow to a point where they know enough truth to be able to impart that truth to others effectively, right? Building relationships in which we speak the Word of God to one another. We speak the truth in love and build up one another. Go to Ephesians 4. We'll see this process. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to start in verse 11. We'll actually go to verse 10. Verse 10. Ephesians 4, verse 10. He who descended, that is Jesus, descended into the heart of the earth and the grave, is Himself also who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. So Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. And as the ascended Lord, verse 11 says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. These are the offices of the church, the leaders of the church. And I would make the argument that the office of apostle and prophet has ceased and is no more. What we now have is evangelists and pastor-teachers. Pastor-teachers I take as one office. In the Greek construction, it could be worded that way, pastor-teachers. So you have evangelists and pastor-teachers today. The apostles and prophets minister to us through their writings in the Scripture. But notice, why are the leaders of the church given to the church? Are they given to the church to do all the ministry themselves? That's kind of our common idea in, in America, isn't it? We come, we kind of spectate, let this guy do all this stuff, maybe a few other guys, and we just go home, right? Maybe you have a church secretary, that person can do stuff, the pastor, the deacon. But you know, we're just here to spectate. But is that the way it should work? Is that why God gives leaders to the church? Now look at verse 12. All of this is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The leaders of the church are given to the church to equip the whole church to do ministry. And this is to the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is built up when all of the members are thoroughly equipped to do ministry. Verse 13, 
until this tells us how long this lasts. We're going to find out how long we've got to be engaged in ministry as Christians. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This ministerial process happens until we're all perfect. You know when that's going to be? When we get to heaven. So it never ends in this life, right? This is the process for the duration of our life. Verse 14. As a result, this is a result of every member ministry, every Christian doing ministry so that the church is being built up to a mature man, and this is what it looks like. We are no longer to be children, right? That's obvious. If you're a mature man, you're not a child anymore, right? So we're not to act like children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. If you're theologically deceived, if you're back and forth and can't figure out biblical doctrine, according to this passage, are you a mature man or a child? You're a child, right? Children are tossed back and forth. They're they're not stable. But when you grow to maturity, you become sound in your faith, sound in doctrine, you understand the Scripture. And when that happens, what can you do? If you have a solid grasp of the Word of God, what are you going to be able to do? Teach it to others, right? So carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. Who is to be speaking the truth in love? Just the pastor? The body. Every member, right? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. The whole church grows as we're all speaking the truth in love to one another. Speaking the Word of God to one another. Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies. Notice that. Every joint supplies something. Think of your own body. What happens if your leg muscles stop working? It's going to be hard to walk, right? You end up in the ER until 5 in the morning like I did last week with my wife because she had a muscle spasm. Right? So if your muscles or your tendons or your ligaments, you tear your ACL, your crucial ligament there in your knee... You can't play sports for a while. I tore both of them within about nine months. It's not fun. So you need all of these parts working together to contribute to the whole. So Paul says, every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's the way it works. A church where minister the, the, the pastors do all the work is an immature church. A mature church is where everybody's being equipped, discipled, trained to do the work of the ministry so that we build each other up in love, right? That's a much better view. That's a view where everyone has a role to play. Everyone can get involved. Every member or every part has a role to play. So that's what discipleship is. It's following after Christ and then calling unbelievers to follow after Christ. And then coming alongside of those who are believers and helping them grow and learn and be trained and equipped to Christian maturity. Okay, All of us should be involved in that. But that brings me to a second question, and I'm going to ask it two ways. How do we practically go about doing discipleship? Or, to put it another way, what are some helpful methods of discipleship? What are some helpful methods for discipleship? What do you think? What are some ways we can go about doing this? Just walk up to people. (laughs) Okay, so walk up to 
people, non-believers, is that what you have in mind specifically? So share the gospel with unbelievers, right? You never have to pray and ask God if He wants you to share the gospel with this person. Because what's the answer? Yes. Yes. Preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, right? So that's one way to do it. But specifically, in the context of believers, how can we best help believers grow? How can we best do discipleship? What are some ideas you might have? Encourage them to read the Bible. Encourage them to read the Bible? Okay. That's pretty important. I have to look to the left now, don't I? This was getting comfortable. Let me suggest a few ways, okay? One way to do this is one-on-one. Okay? Maybe you'll invite another Christian into a discipling relationship with you and you'll meet together weekly or bi-weekly and maybe you'll read a book together. Maybe you'll read a book of the Bible together. Maybe you'll go through a discipleship curriculum together. But maybe you'll do it one-on-one in the context of a one-on-one relationship in which you both come alongside each other and help each other follow Jesus. Another way to do it is what I call discipleship groups. This is my favorite way to do it. This would be a group of three to five people, gender-specific, men with men, women with women, in which you agree to meet together weekly or bi-weekly. And again, you can read a book together. You can work through the book of the Bible together. Or you can use a discipleship manual. I, I, I use what's called Fundamentals of the Faith. It's a workbook by John MacArthur. And it's fantastic. I'm working through it right now with a few guys. And the goal is, once we work through this for about a year, each of us then go and start another group. And so if you think of it, I've got two other guys, Ian and Gary are the two guys. John would have been there, but... He's got another calling in life right now. That's fine. So us three are meeting every other week. I led the first two lessons. After that, they're going to take turns leading lessons. And then in a year or so, when we're finished, each of us will start another group with three or four guys. And if we all start a group with three more guys, it goes from three to three, six, nine. Then you got nine people in discipling relationships, learning the Word of God. Okay. And then imagine if all nine of us then go out and start a group. Then you have, I can't even multiply that high, right? Somebody probably can, but I can't. Like 27? Maybe more than that? So that's how it works. It's the process of multiplication. Okay? So discipleship groups. Another way to do it is uh, preaching and teaching. What's happening today is discipleship, isn't it? The Word of God's being taught. People are being instructed and learning about the things of God. This is discipleship. So there are various ways to do it. Let me uh, kind of illustrate the method I think we should follow. Because where, where do you think we should get our method from? Who? The, Bible. the Bible, for sure. But what man in history do you think was the best disciple maker? Jesus. These questions are too easy. I'm going to have to make them harder next time. Jesus! Jesus is the master disciple maker. And as obvious as that is, how rare is it for us in our culture to say, let me find out how Jesus did it. In our day, we're building programs and classes. We're doing all these different things, but usually... It, it's not going to where Jesus starts. How, how do we do discipleship the way Jesus did it? That's the best way to do it. Let me kind of illustrate for you Jesus' method. You can do it with concentric circles. Okay, So we draw a big circle. This is kind of the first aspect of Jesus' discipling. Jesus would minister to the masses. right? Jesus preached to large crowds. How many people do you think were in the crowds that Jesus preached to? Thousands. Thousands. We know one time he fed a crowd of how many men? 5,000. 5, Notice that the text says men. That doesn't count women and children. That would have put it up to about 15,000 people. These are the massive crowds that were flocking to Jesus. 
You think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus teaching this to large crowds. So Jesus ministered to the masses. But then you can draw within that big circle, you can draw a smaller circle. Jesus not only ministered to the masses, but He also had a smaller group of people He ministered to. You think of the 70, right? Jesus sent out the 70 disciples. So Jesus had a group of disciples that followed Him and to whom He ministered. But then you can draw a third circle inside of that circle. And you think of the 12. Jesus spent a lot more time with the twelve than He did with other people, right? For three years, He walked with these men and spent much quality time with them. And then you can draw one more final circle and you think of the the three, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Often, you'll find Jesus alone with just these three apostles. And it just turns out that Peter and John end up being two of the most significant apostles in the book of Acts you read the book of Acts. So, Jesus had the masses, He had a a smaller group of disciples, but then He had the twelve, and then He had the three. Paul did the same thing. Paul ministered to the masses, didn't he? Paul Paul would go into the Areopagus and preach to the crowds. He went to the marketplaces, reasoned with whoever was there, called them to repent and believe. But then you could draw another circle, and you come to the end of Paul's letters, you see all these churches he's writing to, Right? Paul planted churches. He ministered to believers. And then you draw another circle. You get to the end of Paul's letters and you see all these names. Right? We saw that at the end of Colossians, didn't we? These men and even women that Paul seemed to have deep relationships with. And then you draw a final circle and you have Timothy and Titus. These are two men that Paul really went deep with. Right? So that's kind of the method I'm recommending. That we need to minister to the masses. Everyone we come into contact with, we should share the Gospel with. Right? I go out and open our preach every Wednesday. But then, we have our local church and we have lots of believers in our lives that we have a connection to. But then, we should have a smaller group of people that we're meeting with, like discipleship groups, where for at least a year or so, we're going deep in our relationships with these people and training them and equipping them. And then, the smaller circle, there might be one or two Christians in your lifetime that you're really going to go deep with. You're going to have a long-term relationship with them and mentor them and so on. So that's kind of the method that I recommend. Lance Quinn, in a book on pastoral ministry, says this. He says that faithful pastors, and by way of extension, all faithful Christians, should look to Christ to discover a methodology. Right? We've determined that. We should get our method from Jesus. This one man impacted the world in a way no one one else ever has. And he only ministered for three years. He had a three-year ministry And His ministry impacts us today. And His method was to take a few men, pour Himself into those men, so they would go do likewise. Right? And that's exactly what they did. So Quinn highlights four key principles that characterizes Jesus' methodology. Four key principles. They're prayerful meditation, prayerful meditation, careful selection, purposeful association, and powerful proclamation. Let me show you these four. First of all, prayerful meditation. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And uh, also, I'll get you to turn to Mark 3 as well. Hold both of those places in your Bible. We're going to be going back and forth. Luke 6 and Mark chapter 3. Luke 6, I want to look at verse 12. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 12. This is right before Jesus chooses the twelve apostles. And look what Luke says. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and He spent the whole night in prayer to God. I think Jesus prayed a lot. Spent the whole night in prayer to God. What do you think He might have been praying about? How to pick His disciples or who to pick. Amen. So, I mean, that, that makes sense. He's about to pick the twelve. Before He makes this monumental decision, He spends the whole night in prayer to God. It's very likely that at least some of that prayer included whom He was going to choose. He wanted to choose the right men that the Father had given Him, right? So prayerful meditation. Before we choose and we're going to enter in, you can't disciple everybody, can you? Can you disciple the whole world by yourself? No. No. So you have to be selective. You have to choose people. And so it starts with prayerful meditation. Ask the Lord whom He would have you disciple. Even today, if you're not already in a discipling relationship or in some sort of a discipleship group, pray and ask the Lord who He would have you enter into that with. But then secondly, there's careful selection. Look at verse 13. And when day came, He called His disciples to Him and chose twelve of them. And we know the names, right? Peter, James, John, all those guys. How many disciples do you think Jesus had? He had twelve, but then He had more disciples. So He had a lot of disciples, right? He sent out seventy at one time. There were five hundred brethren who were eyewitness of the resurrection. So he had a lot of disciples, but out of this larger group of disciples, Jesus picks just 12 of them. Because you can't disciple everybody with the same effectiveness at once. So if you choose a few, you can. You can pour yourself into them. And that's what Jesus did. So we need to carefully select whom we're going to disciple. And then if you look at Mark 3, verse 13, watch what Mark writes. And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted. He summoned whom He Himself wanted, and they came to Him. But Jesus was selective. He chose a small group of men out of His larger followers that He would disciple. And we have to do that. We have to choose out of the larger group of in our Christian circle, our churches and so forth, the few we're going to pour ourselves into. So careful selection. Thirdly is purposeful association. Purposeful association. Look at Mark 3. Verse 14. I love this phrase here. It says, Jesus appointed twelve so that they would be with Him. Why did He appoint the twelve? So that they would be with Him. They would be with Him. They would spend time with Him. That they would walk with Jesus. They would learn from Jesus. They would spend much time with Jesus. Purposeful, intentional time together. And so if we're going to make disciples, we've got to spend time with the people of God. Right? And this could look different. You know, it could look different for different people. It could be a group where we meet every week. But in addition to that, we should have people over for dinner. Right? If you have a discipleship group, often have to have them over for dinner. Go out and hang out with them. Spend time together. Rub elbows with each other so that you, they can see godliness in you. You can model obedience to the Word of God for them. You can influence them. Discipleship is influence. And we influence people by spending time with them. Right? Who do we become the most like? Who do we 
become the most like? People that we never meet and never hang out with? No, we become like the people we hang out with, right? That's why when we're young, our parents tell us to pick good peers, right? Because bad company corrupts good morals, Paul says. Vice versa, then, would be good company produces good morals. You imitate those who you hang out with. And so we need to hang out with our disciples so that we're modeling godliness. So Jesus picked them that they might be with Him. In Acts 16, you don't have to turn here, I'll read it. In verse 3, Paul comes to Derby and Lystra, and Timothy's there. Paul meets him for the first time. And verse 3 says this, Paul wanted this man to go with him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So he took him with him on his missionary journeys, and Timothy essentially became like a son to Paul and lived with him and, and ministered with him for a long period of time. Right? And then by the end of his life, Timothy's pastoring in a church in Ephesus. Right? So we spend time purposely with one another. And then finally, powerful proclamation. Powerful proclamation. This is kind of the end goal. Look again at Mark 3, verse 14. And He appointed twelve so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach. So what was the end goal for the twelve? They would go out and do the same. They would go out and do exactly what Jesus had done. They would go out and preach. Jesus had taken them alongside of them. They watched Him preach. They watched Him do ministry. And then He sent them out to do the very same thing He had been doing. Right? That's what we do. So in my discipleship groups, for instance, what we do is every, every Wednesday, Gary and Ian go with me. They watch me preach. They preach too. We give out tracts. We do evangelism together. And I let them loose. I let them preach. Right? So that's the goal. That we would do ministry together. And that we would learn how to make disciples. Okay? So prayerful meditation, careful selection, purposeful association, and powerful proclamation. So those are a few questions. We've considered what is discipleship. It's following after Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. How do we do it? There's various ways. One way we can do it is small discipleship groups of three to five in which we carefully and prayerfully meditate on whom we're going to choose, choose a specific group, associate with them, and then do ministry together with the goal that they will go out and make disciples as well. Okay, Multiplication and reproduction. Next week, or two weeks from now, we'll, we'll finish this lesson up and uh, hopefully we'll have more people and, and get it going. So any uh, final thoughts, questions, or comments on uh, all we've talked about this morning? I can also see how the disciples stayed with Him because as it said in John, when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, um, it says that the disciples found what He said was hard and then they no longer followed Him, That's right. but the twelve stayed. Amen. They were walking with Him no more. And right? he, Peter said, where shall we go? Amen. So you're going to have disciples that defect, aren't you? You're going to have Demases and Judases. You're going to have defectors. That's the hard part of the ministry. You pour yourself into someone for a long period of time only to watch them walk away from the faith. That's going to happen. right? But then there's going to be those who are committed. And so that's why when we're discipling people, you know what we're looking for? You're going to love this one. We're looking for fat people. Fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. Right? If they're not faithful, you're wasting your time. If they're not available, you can't meet with them. And if they're not teachable, you're, again, you're wasting your time. These are the kind of people we're looking to really pour ourselves into. We'll preach the Gospel to everybody, but we're going to commit ourselves to people who are faithful and available and teachable. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time together this morning. We pray that You would help us 
at Christ as King to be disciple makers, that each of us would be making disciples who make disciples who make disciples for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to the name of our Savior. Be with us this morning as we worship. Meet with us, your people. Open our eyes to behold your glory. We pray these things to that end. Amen.